Alrighty, y'all. Welcome back to the Hollerback Podcast. This is episode four. Today we're going to be looking at education in Appalachia. We've got a few great guests on with us to talk about their experiences. Um, but I'm Michael. And I'm Stacy, And we are here with um, Stephanie Devine and Luke Glazer. They are both um, heavily involved with Teach for America. And I'm going to let them talk a little bit more about themselves. Um, I've known them for years at this point. Um, so Stephanie, do you want to go ahead and do a little intro? Um, tell us a little bit more about yourself, your title, and how you became interested and invested in education in Appalachia. Sure. Thanks, Stacey. Um, I have a crazy last name that's not a mountain last name, so it's divine, not Devine, believe it or not. Uh, <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Stacey, you having a podcast at your age just proves to me that you are far more accomplished than I will ever be. Uh, but it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to be with Luke, who I so admire and respect for the work he's done. Uh, yeah. Hey, y'all. I'm Stephanie Devine. A lot of people call me Steph. I'm the executive director of Teach for America Appalachia. I uh, do not have the privilege of being born in the region. I was born in central Ohio, but grew up with an incredible grandmother who is still uh, around in Boston, people around. She grew up in a coal mining camp in Perry County in a community called Hardburley. So I grew up sort of hearing about this place that sounded so mystical and so different than what I was experiencing in the suburban Midwest. I'm a traditionally trained teacher. I studied special education in college and heard about Teach for America my junior year. Uh, I ended up being a Teach for America teacher in Baltimore. I got to teach some of the most incredible children in the world in uh, inner city west and southeast Baltimore. After about three years in the city, I had sort of a, a revelation that I'm sure a lot of folks had that, you know, I love teaching, but city life was just not really working for me. So I heard about this region called Appalachia, found out its office was in Hazard, which is just down the road from where my grandmother grew up, took a wild chance, drove down there over a weekend, visited some people, saw some core members. Uh, I think Luke was actually one of the people that I, I got to meet. Um, and I just fell in love with the region. And I felt, I always talk about, I've never felt at home until I moved here and I've been here for six years. Uh, work, I was a Teach for America teacher coach for the last five years until I became our executive director a little over a year ago. That's awesome. Yeah, I, um, because you don't have a mountain last name, I just automatically thought it was pronounced. The Gets me into trouble all the time. It's okay. I should start calling myself like a hall or a tacket or something and that would just make it <laughs> for everybody. I also didn't know that your grandmother was from Hard Burley because that's where... Um, my grandmother is from, so. I would put money down that they probably grew up uh, running around the creek together. So they're, they're, she grew up in Groundhog Holler, which is, I don't know if, where what road your grandma grew up on, but it, it's, I think it's a little bit farther back than what people consider hard really these days, but the house is, uh, you can still see the foundation of the house she was born in. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, Luke, do you want to do an intro for us? So my name is Luke. I grew up in Louisville. And I went to Kentucky and the plan was to go to law school, but I was kind of cognizant of the fact that I had lived in a bubble most of my life. I had only lived in cities. And before I went to law school, I wanted to see a little bit more um, of the world and what was going on. And um, I had some, we went to do some visits down to Whitesburg when I was in college as part of a fellowship I was in. And um, I was just really, it really left an impression on me and, and what I thought Appalachia was based off what I had heard people talk about growing up and what it actually was. And so I applied to Teach for America. This was before I knew Steph and was accepted into the program and was um, entered into the Appalachia Corps. Um, 
was accepted at, at Hazard High School and um, originally went for Spanish, but was told that I was going to be teaching advanced calculus uh, the next year. So I had about half a year to figure that out and um, started teaching uh, AP Calculus year two. Uh, we went from zero kids passing the AP exam to 10 kids passing the AP exam in a year. Um, we had a 99% pass rate the year after that. And since then, every year, we've had double-digit students um, passing AP exams. We've started a Calculus two class for the first time in since the, that everybody can remember. Um, and this year, I am teaching AP literature. Whether successfully or unsuccessfully, we will see. Um, in addition, I'm uh, on the board of the Appalachian Arts Alliance down here. We're, bu we're building an art station downtown. And um, I, again, kind of punted on um, graduate school to run for uh, city council down here in 2018. The top four uh, were elected and I came in fourth place. So that was enough to get me there. And so I'm, I'm keeping myself pretty busy now between teaching and um, working on the city council and, and my various projects there. So I, I guess I want to close that by saying, it, Michael, it's nice to uh, unofficially meet you. I've heard a lot about you and uh, it's, it's nice to be on uh, a podcast together, if not physically. Nice to meet you too, man. Uh, I'm really impressed with all the work you've done, and thanks for giving a little care and love to Appalachia, even though you're from Louisville. Yeah, I, I get that a lot. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, you've definitely probably heard a lot about each other. Um, I want the listeners to know how I know these, well, all three of these lovely people. Y'all already know how I, how I know Michael, but um, Stephanie and Luke. I met Luke when I was a freshman in high school. I still call him Glazer. Um, in fact, it's weird to call him Luke right now. And uh, he won't admit it, but we've been friends ever since. Um, <laughs> first students, but you know. Now, we've been now, friends since you graduated. Right, right. There it is. There it is. Um, yeah, so awesome people. Honored to have y'all. Thank you for taking time out of your busy online remote day. <laughs> um, but we, first, we just kind of want to open up and, you know, tell us a little bit more about Teach for America and their mission. And you can both kind of tag team this one if you want to, um, you know, from the executive director perspective, but also as, you know, someone who was in the core and loved it so much, you know, um, and how it affected you all. Yeah, I could start with the elevator pitch. Uh, let's see if I'm still on my game after so many days on Zoom meetings. Uh, but <laughs> Teach for America was founded uh 30 years ago, believe it or not, by an incredible woman named Wendy Kopp. Uh, she had this vision that teaching is actually just a radical act of leadership. Obviously, there's a lot of things that go into the science of teaching, and I know that from my undergraduate and now my graduate experience. But at the heart of what makes teachers great, we believe, is their ability to lead in really challenging circumstances. So her literal thesis when she was at Princeton was that Teach for America was going to be this organization that recruited our nation's top 10% of college graduates and young professionals to commit at least two years of their lives to teach in an underserved school. And that when they taught in those schools, they would have dramatic impact on students that would persist uh, for the rest of their lives and change the trajectory of many students. So uh, Teach for America started often in large urban areas. We've had regions in Houston and Los Angeles. Uh, in New York for those entire 30 years. And then we started doing rural work in places like the incredible Mississippi Delta, um, places like here, obviously places like the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. But Teach for America's current orientation, as we've continued to learn a lot about the world and what students need, is that right now we need to orient towards what is possible in the next 10 years. So I can tell you that regionally in Appalachia, we are approaching our 10th year anniversary of being here, which is great. Um, and over the next 10 years, uh, my, my vision and my team's vision 
is that twice as many students in communities where we work, uh, so Appalachian communities where we work, would achieve educational milestones that put them on a path to economic mobility and a future filled with possibility. And I think what that looks like here in Appalachia, um, we've placed about 150 teachers over the last nine years. They have had incredible impact. 13 of them have taught AP classes like Luke. Seven of those classes were started by Teach for America alumni. We've impacted tens of thousands of students. And what's really incredible that we're trying to sort wrap our heads around um, from, a systems, from a systems lens is that in communities where Teach for America has been present, the rate of college and career readiness has doubled uh, in growth as compared to counties where we are not there. So I think what's really, what I love about our participants and what they bring to the table as teachers is they, they're they really great classroom teachers, but like Luke, they also take that systems view and say like, what else would need to be true in my community for students to have what they need, whether that's food security, economic pieces, to you know, um, great family situations. I think our people like me, when they get here, uh, they just fall in love with the communities and really wanna do every possible thing that they can to support their students. I'll, I'll leave it to Luke to talk about what it's actually like to do Teach for America in Appalachia. I, I guess the, the theory is that um, it's not so much what you teach as it is how you teach it. And um, one of the one of the things that Teach for America's detractors kind of point out is that we people like me, Stephanie, came from a traditional um, education background. I did not. I was an English and Spanish major. Um, but the idea is that if they're picking the the top leaders and it traditionally it's college students, but now they'll take uh, the, uh, people from other fields as well, people who have graduated. But if you were a leader at college and, and you've been able to navigate difficult majors and a ton of extracurriculars and you've led programs and negotiated challenges, then you have what it takes to do what most of my friends who have gone on to do other things call the most difficult job that they will ever do, which is teaching. Um, so when I got accepted into the Corps, we spent a summer teaching summer school in the Delta region of Mississippi, which is south of Memphis. Um, and there we were doing, you know, 12, 13 hour days teaching, going to um, teacher uh, preparation classes and then getting ready for class the next day, um, which, believe it or not, was pretty good training for what it was like as a first year teacher. Um, and while we were going through those trainings, we were getting interviews and being placed at schools in the Appalachian region, which at that point was as far west as Corbin and I think maybe Rockcastle County and as far east as um, like Belfry, Martin County, that area. So it was a, it's a pretty large region and still is a pretty large region. I think most of them actually get hired much earlier now as we've kind of gotten our feet wet here. Uh, so I, uh, my, my story was a little unique and we can go down that route if we want to, but, but ultimately I got placed at Hazard High School um, and it's a two-year commitment. So in that two years, you know, what makes my experience different from another teacher's? Well, um, I'm getting um, detailed professional development. Stephanie was my teacher coach, um, my second year teaching, and it, it, it is what turned my teaching around. It's what led to, uh, in large part, what led to so much success in my classroom. She would come in, she would observe, and then we would sit down and debrief and and talk about things afterwards. And she would challenge me to try new things and think about things in a different way. And and uh, just really, I, I tell people all the time, if Stephanie told me that jumping off a bridge would make me a better teacher, I would do it without a moment's hesitation. Uh, Cause that's, that's how much impact she's had in my classroom and other classrooms. Uh, in addition to that, you're working regionally with other teachers and alumni who are trying these things and, and we're, we're getting professional development, not just about, you know, how to be a good math teacher, but looking at things from the thousand foot perspective, looking at things um, as a matter of systems. How is 
this child's home life connected to school, connected to community, connected to healthcare, connected to employment, and what can you as a teacher do about that? And I think that high school or college Luke would have been like, well, the answer is not much. You have to have a little bit more um, power, a little bit more money to do something like that. And current Luke would say that no, TGD is in fact the perfect place to be because in a rural community, as, as you guys know, in a rural community, the school is the center of everything. And so change can oftentimes happen from there and spread out to all of those various places we talked about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, I think it's very special. And I don't think that, you know, my experience with Teach for America is unique. Um, we met, and by we, I just mean Hazard High School in general, um, have had so many great, well, not so many, but um, a couple of great teachers off the top of my head from Teach for America. And both of those teachers that I'm thinking of, you being included, Luke, at the risk of sounding um, complimentary, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they've definitely instilled values in me and, you know, helped shape me into the person I am today. Right. And, and hopefully, hopefully you were able to see that those subtle, I mean, we by, we by no means were the best teachers at that school or the only good teachers at that school. I, I learned a ton and still learn a lot from my colleagues. But, you know, it's those subtle differences that you probably recognized in mine and Ann's classes that, that we were looking at things from a little bit different perspective. Right. Yeah. So I kind of, before we move on to the next question, I kind of want you to speak about your, um, calculus creates problem solvers segment because you know that's something that I've never seen another teacher do um you know up until you and also after you um and I know that you know it, that's something that I definitely talk about whenever I talk about your teaching style so if you just want to sure I, I can I can talk about that real quick Michael I have a question for you um you took math in high school yeah yes what was the highest math class you took um I took a statistics class at our local community college. Okay, so stats, you do. So stats, but like, you know, algebra one, algebra two, what was your favorite, maybe not, you'd, maybe you didn't directly ask your teacher, maybe you did, but what was your favorite question that you either asked or was going through your head in math? Or maybe not favorite, but most common question. When am I going to use this again? How am I going to, how is this going to happen? When am I ever going to use this? So I did not like math in high school. I was, I was, pretty good at it but that doesn't mean I like it and oftentimes when I was really frustrated especially in like those upper level math classes I'd sit there and I'd say you know when am I ever going to use this stuff when am I ever going to use properties of exponents and most a lot of math teachers will try to answer that question be like oh well if you're doing this specific thing and if you're doing that specific thing and going through your head as well I'm not going to do that specific thing so this is pointless so when I got told I was going to be teaching calculus of all things, my first reaction was not, oh, crap, I got to figure out how to teach calculus. It was, I got to figure out how to answer that question, that when am I ever going to use this question? And I don't think that there, there's not really like a one moment of epiphany. It just kind of came to me over a summer. But let's say that we were going to sit here on this podcast and we were going to not leave until we had figured out and solved, had an idea to solve poverty. What would we do? Well, we would probably sit here and we would talk about the history of poverty and what has been tried. And we would look at it from a national perspective and a local perspective and an international perspective. And we would read up about it. We'd learn as much as we could. And then we might throw out ideas. I might have an idea. Stacy might have an idea. Michael might have an idea. Um, and then we would take all those ideas and we'd say, OK, of these ideas, we think that this is the best one. And we would 
apply that, you know, assuming that we have all the money in the world and all the time in the world, we would apply that and we would test it and see if it worked. So in short, you research the problem, you come up with a bunch of different solutions, you pick the solution that you think is best, you try that solution and see if it works. And that's the exact same way you go about solving a math problem. If I had you multiply two radicals right now, you would have to think about multiplication, about numbers, about radicals. You'd go back, think about all the stuff you learned. You, we might come up with three different answers. You'd all try it. We'd debate it, see which one we thought was best, and see if that's right. So you don't learn exponent rules because you're going to necessarily explicitly use exponent rules. You learn math because it trains your brain how to solve problems. And so as a result, with that idea, I said, okay, well, if we're going to learn how to solve math problems, let's learn how to solve real world problems too. So in my pre-calculus class, we will look at local issues. We will read articles from people both inside of the region and outside of the region. And often outside of the region, we'll have to talk about the problems associated with that. And once kids are, you know, fairly shocked and kind of beaten down by the, all these problems that are just kind of pressed upon this area and it feels impossible to solve – uh, we read some. Uh, we read about some people who are trying to solve those problems, and in the spring, they do what I call a jury project, modeled after colleges of architecture, where they work with their community juror to um, solve a problem in their community based off their career interests. Yeah, and so something we found um, in you know my class specifically was people that you know I'm from a small town, obviously. Um, you grew up with everyone, you know how they act on a day-to-day -day basis, you know their grandmother, their blood type, everything. So it, it was kind of um, amazing to me and something that really stuck with me, seeing people, because I loved math. Um, frustrating at times, but it was truly my favorite subject. And so um, it wasn't ever an issue for me to care about it, but people that I had seen um, that, you know, did not care about math whatsoever kind of start to, you know, ease into it and care about it a little more. So um that was really special to me for sure. I mean, yeah, that's a really cool project. And I think that that's definitely needed um, for students who do have those questions, you know, when am I going to use this? Why is this important? And I think it's, that's crucial to keeping kids engaged in a classroom is giving them a purpose for, you know, why they're putting in all this work and why they're doing all this homework, and, you know, these concepts and ideas. And for some that, have no idea when they're going to use it again. I think it's always a real world application is, is the best way to solidify things for folks who might not be as attached to the subject. Um, well, and part of the, part of the class, Michael, is that, you know, you guys, by virtue of being sons and daughters of Appalachia, I mean, statistically, you're not expected to get where you've gotten. You know, if we look at Stacy and Michael, not as Stacy and Michael, but his numbers on a data sheet, you know, they don't expect you to get there. And, and, and I don't think a lot of our kids, know that they don't understand that they don't understand that you know Kentucky has specific data they look at to make sure their Appalachian students are doing as well as other students and and why that is and why that has to be like that and then the goal in some ways is to get kids pissed off enough to want to take the hard classes so they can prove people wrong yeah and I mean yeah. I think that idea segues us into our next question um so you know people have ideas of you know how educated people are in Appalachia, and how does your perception of education? is cutting out on us. Oh, I don't. Um, so if you just want to like start from, so that segues into our next question. Yeah. So that segu segues uh, great into our next question. 
I think a lot of people come in with preconceived ideas about, you know, education in Appalachia and, you know, the intelligence of the population just based on um, portrayal in the media and even some, you know, national statistics about literacy and, you know, advancement. So could you guys talk for a little bit about how your perception of education and um, I guess the intellect of, of folks in Appalachia, how that shifted um, or if it shifted from being outside of the region to really getting a firsthand look at um, being part of that system? Um, I'm happy to share here first, but and largely because I have extremely strong opinions. So please, uh, you all should know I was a competitive debater in college. And when I get really excited, I speak quickly and for too long. So I will not be insulted if, uh, if Stacy has to cut me off at any point. So I, I remember, I didn't, I don't think I actually had a lot of conceptions around education. Uh, when I was moving here, when I was talking to my grandmother, she w- moved to an orphanage when her father died in a mining accident and her mother couldn't raise all 14 of her children by herself. So I, I didn't really have an exemplar of what a traditional public school education might or might not have looked like had she remained in the region um, in a coal camp. I, I remember having an assumption about the buildings looking really bad because of the level of poverty. And I was shocked when I moved here. And if you were to, I always tell people who are visiting from other places, if you were to walk into one of our high schools, many of them are beautiful, right? They have, they have great resources. There's a lot of technology in a lot of our schools. We've used uh, state funding and grants really well, I would argue in the region to make sure that our students are walking into a beautiful place. There's certainly exceptions to that rule. And there's a lot of uh, schools that could use a lot more support in their facilities. But I think the thing that keeps me up at night, uh, really, Stacey and Michael, is this idea that education is not valued here is something I hear a lot. And I, what I, I first interpreted that to mean people saying that, you know, they don't value their children getting becoming more intelligent or that there's this perception that, it, that intellect is not even a value in Appalachia. And what I have found to be the actual case is that, you know, as you all know, in our communities, we, we have students whose grandparents and parents went to one-room schoolhouses, right? They had a radically different educational experience than students are having now. We also know that with the centralization of schools, we have students who are bused an hour and a half one way to go to school every single day. Um, There's a really terrifying statistic from Harlan County of how many hours the average student spends on a bus and how many bus routes that that very... um, really, really great superintendent has to manage. So I, I'm just cognizant of the fact that if I were a parent in Appalachia, watching my student go to school in a way that looked nothing like the way that I did and being an hour and a half from that building, it's going to be really hard to prioritize potentially like physically being at that school or going to a parent teacher conference or knowing what my student is learning in every single class. And then you compound on the reality that if you, if your basic needs aren't being met, if you're struggling to live paycheck to paycheck, if you don't know if the lights are going to be on, then it is, it is, literally psychologically challenging to focus at the level that you would hope students focus at school. But I find that our students are, I would argue, smarter than other students because of the ways that uh, resilience is, is built into the backbones of our communities. I meet students every day. At, at, I'm thinking of a, a, young man, a young man I met in Leslie County High School who was talking about the way he had used um, an aquarium piece of equipment to like get fresh filtered water into his house. And I just realized that like that is not recognized often as like traditionally educated or, or intellectual, but I think many of our students have skills and orientations that their peers don't. And on top of that, are every bit as capable of achieving academic expectations. I think, you know, I had the pleasure of being Luke's teacher coach and he still lets me bother him sometimes. And every time I go into his class, I think you would never know 
some of the situations that his students live in. And that to me is the actual act of a masterful teacher. Um, I think about my friend, uh, Will Bain, who was an AP human geography teacher at Betsy Lane High School, which serves some of the absolute uh, most impoverished students in, Flo in Floyd County. And I, you would think you were in like a world-class private school classroom, knowing that there's students there whose parents make less than $15,000 a year for a family of four. So I just, I am just struck over and over again, Stacey and Michael, with what our students are capable of versus what is expected of them, both in the national conversation and even uh, to some extent locally. Yeah, I, I, I guess I, I, you know, I kind of want to jump in there from the academic perspective. So I, you know, I grew up in Louisville and, and most kids who grew up, and I'm sure you guys have experienced this um, a little bit, but most kids who grew up in cities, they kind of know two things about Appalachia, that somewhere after the Red River Gorge, because that's as far as any of us get down to this area, everything becomes black and white because all the photographs are black and white. And Appalachia is the place you go to for alternative spring break trips to help them build schools and churches and houses because they can't do it themselves. Um, and, and that's kind of the only perspective that you get as a kid um, if you're talking about it at all. So I came down here in college and we, like I said, we went to Whitesburg at the, at the request of two board members of this fellowship who are their civic leaders in Whitesburg. And what I noticed was that there are, are, are really intelligent people who care so, so much about their communities who chose to be there fixing things because that's their passion. And that sounds awful. I acknowledge that I was astounded that they were smart people, but you got to remember that, you know, I grew up with a very limited perspective. So when I came here, I, I, I quickly realized that, you know, the, the idea of teachers being like, you know, TFA teachers coming in and saving people is, is not the case at all. There are, as Stephanie said, smart, if not smarter students here than in other places. I think that the, what we brought to the equation was these additional opportunities. Advanced placement is a perfect example. Advanced placement classes existed at Hazard, but no kids took the test before I got there. I had taken AP classes. I knew how to work, how they worked. I knew how to get kids ready for them. So I said, hey, here's this opportunity. A lot of people don't think you guys can do it. Let's give it a shot. And, and Stacy was in the second class that, that really had incredibly high numbers. And, and in fact, we regularly beat state and national averages. So I think that, that, that from my perspective, it was that, you know, kids here are just as smart as anywhere else. Um, what they perhaps lacked that maybe I didn't lack as growing up in a city was all of these various opportunities that, that teachers brought to the table. Yeah, and you know, when you say, by the way, these um, pauses, it's us getting our microphones unmuted, um, and I can just edit them out, so um, there won't be any like awkward silence <laughs> um, in the podcast, but um, I think the the part where you said, you know, not it's not necessarily a savior thing, um, which is, you know, a great segue into our next question, because, um, you know, and I was one of these people, you Luke, you say that you had limited um, experiences in some ways growing up, and, you know, so did I. Um, thankfully, my mindset has changed because whenever I was younger um, and I heard people saying that they hated Appalachia or Hazard or anything like that, for me, it was kind of like, well, if you hate it so much, then um, leave. <laughs> um, and, you know, that's embarrassing to think about and that I did have that thought process. But um, realizing now that our biggest export is people, um, that's definitely changed. And so when you say um, it's not always a savior complex, I think that 
that's really interesting because I know that I know tons of people who um, in Appalachia who aren't necessarily, not that we're not friendly. That's not, that's not what I'm trying to say here, but um, it's often hard to think that people trying to help us do not have a savior complex, if that makes sense. And so everybody who comes in to help us is doing it kind of, you know, oh, they feel sorry for us. We're a charity case. Um, and, you know, it's easy to feel that way whenever the media paints us as it does. And so I'm wondering for you guys, um, you know, I know that TFA places teachers from all over the country, but is there a learning curve when teachers are specifically put in Appalachia when, you know, they don't know very much about it? It's a great question, Stacey. And what's interesting is, you know, one of our goals by 2030 is that half of our core would be from Appalachia, because I think that there is, to Luke's point, there's tremendous value in having new external viewpoints or a person who is who's, who's going to have their life shaped by this new experience. There's also tremendous, tremendous impact that's possible uh, when you stand in front of kids and you, and you are from there. I'm thinking about our friend Hannah, uh, who just found out that she got accepted into Woo! teacher, which is so exciting. One of the best calls Teach for America ever made. And I think about, you know, if she has the, if she's lucky enough to teach in Hazard when she does the core, I just, when she tells kids that they can go to college, it means something very different than when I tell a kid they can go to college. So I, I think the learning curve mostly, Stacey, is like building a schema. And I'm sorry to use a nerdy education word, um, but like building a mind frame around what rural poverty is, is the actual thing that I see people struggling with the most. Um, one of our incredible leaders in Floyd County, Ramya Ravinder Babu, um, is from Boston. And when I remember calling her to tell her she got in a Teach for America and where Appalachia was. And she asked me how far Trader Joe's was and I'd break her heart. Um, and I think, you know, I really watched her go through this incredible journey as an equity leader of figuring out like, how has her experience of knowing what uh, racism and classism looks like in Boston helped her shape her own understanding of what rural poverty looks like. So I, I think to your point, Stacey, everyone here is friendly, right? The transition is not hard because of anyone being um, put off by teachers. We have a, we're really lucky to be well-received in our communities, but I think the orientation that we have to make sure our teachers have is that it's a privilege for them to teach here. Um, they are lucky that communities open our doors to them, especially to your point, Stacy, with the pretty horrific history of outside intervention coming into Appalachia, taking resources and then leaving it worse than they found it, um, and then taking credit for making some marginal change. So I think a few things have to be true for our teachers not to face that or to overcome that learning curve quickly. One is having just a general, a general mindset of like, this is like, I am so lucky to be here living in this beautiful place, doing this work with some of the most resilient, hopeful, um, passionate people in the world. I think the other thing that has to be true is that you'd be real clear about like what your goal is. Um, and I think that goal has to be co-constructed with your school, with your community. So again, like Luke didn't offer AP calculus so that he could say on Facebook that he teaches AP calculus. He offered it because he saw a real need um, that would change the trajectory of our students' lives. And I think that's, that's what takes the most time and effort up front to your point, Stacey, is like, how do you learn the right things and know the right people? And I think the last thing I would just say is like our best, most impactful teachers and alumni just listen more than they talk when they get here, right? They're, they're not here to tell people, well, here's the solution to this centuries old complicated problem of, of poverty and Appalachia. They sit down and say like, what is your personal lived experience and what can I do? Um, what, what can I use my strengths and service of so that our communities can be even stronger than they already are? And I would extend that to other organizations, too. You know, like when I look at anybody who has moved down here and stayed here, uh, the common denominator is that they I'm using all these math puns and I don't intend to, but it's still funny. 
um, the common denominator is that they they are the listeners. They quickly realized that in order to get anything done, they were going to have to be a part of a team and that their first role on that team was to understand people. Yeah, I think that's a really important part, the listening component. And, you know, I think a lot of people see outside, you know, programs as people trying to come in and, and order people around because they think they know better. But, I think that, you know, my experience with people who've gone through this program is just what Stephanie said is that the, the, you know, the guidance given is to, to go in and actually embrace the community. And, and part of the program is learning from, you know, the incredible teachers that are already there, um, how to, how to best, you know, acclimate to students in the area and, and how to best serve them. And, and so I think that's something that, you know, can't get lost in this conversation is that, you know, TFA does a great job of preparing students to, to come in and take on this incredibly, you know, difficult but needed role. But it's the teachers who are in the building who are giving them advice on their planning period and on their. Oh lunch my period, goodness! You know. So much so. Yes, and, I have. And, to, I have to. Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, Michael. You got no, just, to, just to to note that you know, stu- teachers who come in through TFA. Um, that's their way in the door, but I think that a lot of people's experiences is learning from just the incredible teachers and educators we have in the region and learning how to adapt, you know, their teaching styles to, to best suit the needs of their students is is something that I've heard a lot from from folks who go through the program. Yes. I, I will resist the urge to rattle off names of lots of veteran teachers who I know, but I think about um Maggie Roll at Hazard High School down the down the hallway from Luke uh, is just always reaching out and asking if she can be helpful to our Spanish teachers in the region. I think about uh, Christina Crace, who I would argue uh, with a close with a close second to Luke. She's I think her fifteenth year of teaching. I would say she's the best math teacher I've ever seen in my entire life, and she is in Floyd County. I mean, we we have and you know Courtney Kidd is another person who's just mentored so many of our teachers. And what's really heartwarming to me is, as you all know, teachers aren't exactly millionaires. Uh, unless Luke has figured out a secret way to make this a lucrative position, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So I, there's no reason that they would take extra time to help a new teacher who's from this sort of, you know, maybe new to them or confusing alternative certification program. And I've just been overwhelmed, Michael, to your point about the fact that there's such a team feeling in Eastern Kentucky. Like we are all in this to serve students. We don't need to be on separate teams. We don't need to what school we went to or, you know, how you became a teacher. And I, I am truly blown away. And I also think that's why a lot of our teachers stay for a long time is they feel part of that family and community. Yeah, I, I would just add, it, it goes back to this idea that the school is the center of the community. And I would not have made it anywhere without the teachers and the principal at my school, because whenever I had problems or wanted other opportunities for them, they knew more about and still know more about the community that I do and were able to hook me up with those resources and the, all the way down to, hey, I've got this problem, child. Oh, don't worry about it. I'll call his grandma. It won't be an issue anymore. Like just little things like that that make the difference for a first-year teacher. It's critical for all of us. Yeah, the, so- last example, the last example I'll give, because I would be remiss not to shout these people out, is I think about um, what has really moved me and kept me in this role um, is seeing the ways that over these last nine years, communities have just sort of thought of TFA as like part of their part of the cycle of life in that community. So every year, you know, I'm getting phone calls of like, when do the Teach for America teachers come and what do they teach and where are they from? And I think about Martin County, which is 
A, one of the most beautiful places in the state of Kentucky. Um, but Donna Fitch there and uh, Martha Williams uh, have just done an amazing job, literally welcoming people into their homes, onto their porches, um, over for Sunday dinner. And that is a community where we continue to see teachers stay in the years five and on. We see that our teachers report being really satisfied. I could tell, I could literally tell that story of any county that we work in, but I am just so moved at the way that seamlessly over time, Teach for America has just become part of the rhythm of those mountain communities. Yeah, so this this mentorship mentorship um, this mentorship piece kind of brings us to our next question. But um, from your experience personally and stories you've heard from other folks, what do you think is are some of the most impactful lessons that um, folks have learned from teachers in the area and just from their experiences being in Appalachia and how that's helped them develop um, as professionals. Michael, are you referring to the teachers or the students of teachers? Uh, teachers who are who are TFA teachers. Um, what's what's one of the most impactful things you've learned um, from those veteran teachers and and from folks you know who are established in the systems um, and give that that advice and that help? Oof. Man, I'll, I'll go first while you think about it, Luke. There's okay. uh, Miss uh, Cassandra Akers is a, a truly, truly game changing uh, former principal. She now works coaching principals in Floyd County. And we always let her, I, we, I call it a, her gospel. We let her give her sermon to our new teachers at the beginning of every year because she gets up and has a lot of strong feelings about things for good reason. <laughs> I, think, I think a phrase that she said that really rocked my world um, was don't love, don't love kids stupid or don't love kids to jail. And I think a lot of our teachers, uh, to our conversation about the savior mentality, are, are, to be really transparent, our least impactful teachers feel really bad for their kids. And I think there's a radical difference between feeling bad for somebody, which feels patronizing and uh, savior-ish, as opposed to having human empathy for the fact that all people face challenges and our students tend to face just different challenges than others or additional challenges. And Ms. Akers just always is telling our, our teachers, and they, they all remember this for the rest of their lives, this idea that like, love in action in a classroom does not mean lowering expectations or letting kids get away with things because they have a hard home life. It is loving them so much. I get emotional talking about it. Sorry. Loving them so much that you tell them what you believe they're capable of doing. And I think Luke really exemplifies this in his classroom, right? Like love means high expectations and rigor as opposed to low expectations and patting kids on the back. And that's just a lesson that all of our teachers carry with them. Yeah, then I, I, I guess I'll speak to the other side of that is that sometimes I push and hug my expectations are too high. And, and I think that some of the most valuable lessons I've learned that other teachers and, and my principal um, have taught me is how much of a role that a student's personal life plays in who they are into the classroom. You know, I, I have difficulty with the child. I go and talk to another teacher or talk to the principal about them and I learn volumes about this kid that I've been, and I've been trying to crack this egg for months and, you know, for whatever reason, they won't open up to me. I'm a pretty loud, intimidating guy. Some people, you know, we don't drive very well, but, and immediately it just lends another perspective that, that I didn't know that one of the most difficult students I had to work with, um, I did not want him to take calculus, but he was determined to do so. And so I was like, okay, well, if we're going to do this, then we need to be able to work together. So the principal, the football coach, 
because uh, we I found out he was super into football, came and we sat down with him and his mom and we said, here's how it's going to have to be if you're going to do well in this class. And that turned into one of the most positive relationships I've had with a student. And so, yeah, I think that the biggest lesson I've learned is that, and again, it, it always comes back to families and communities, is that you, these other teachers, your colleagues are windows into these children's lives that you one or two or even seven years in just don't know. Yeah, and I think that that's um, interesting for me to see as well, just like from an outsider's perspective, because in my opinion, I like to think that um, Luke and I kind of, you know, clicked right away as a as a student teacher. Yeah, well, you're also you're also loud and obnoxious, so it worked out. It's amazing how, um, <laughs> in this case, opposites didn't attract. But, um, anyways, <laughs> uh, yeah. So it was really interesting to me to see, you know, from the outside perspective, um, just what a kid opening up to a teacher can do, and I think that. Um, Luke excelled in that and um, I'm really thankful for that and I'm thankful that you know I got to see like I said before friends who didn't care whatsoever about academics or anything like that start to care a little bit more Um, and you know touching on our next you know subject I don't really want that this episode to be about um, negative stereotypes when it comes to Appalachia but you know, it's it's kind of one of those things that we can't turn a blind eye to because so many people think that we do that anyways. Um, you know, but there are statistics about how we are behind the rest of the country when it comes to things like literacy rates. And, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge those when touching on this subject. But what would you say to people who only know about the negatives of educational disparities in Appalachia? Steph, I'm going to let you take that one. So people who who don't who only know about the negative realities is that what you're saying? How would I respond to them if they only if they just walk up to me and say like here's five statistics about how people are behind educationally in Appalachia? Yeah, yeah. I would say first of all, you've probably never been here, um, so stop talking about it. I all and don't read Hillbilly Elegy. Um, I think the other thing I would say, uh, you might need to edit that out, Stacy. Real talk. Um, so I, I just keep thinking about like if they understood what our communities have gone through and that they are still standing and thriving and fighting. I would say that you have your priorities entirely wrong. And I obviously as an education advocate and education nonprofit leader, I, I believe that education is like the thing that will change the trajectory of our communities. But when I go back to that Maslow's hierarchy of needs, and even right now in the, in the, um, this quarantine shelter in place moment in time, Appalachian communities work to take care of each other in ways that are like mind blowing. If you're not from here as someone who's, who's a transplant. I also, so I would say that our communities have been focused on surviving in all honesty, when it comes to recovering from the the coal recession, from recovering from a variety of federal and, and local government interventions that have done the opposite of what they were intended to do, recovering, uh, fighting actively the opioid crisis. I just think about the fact that our families are going through all of that and yet still sending their students to school, being really excited when their students excel, going to football games and drama productions. I just think that our community's priorities have had to have had to be different. Um, I would also say that they are missing the bright spots. I always tell a story of a young man at Eastridge High School um, who taught himself AP calculus on a laptop in the, in the library uh, because the school did not have an AP calculus teacher. 
and he got a perfect score on his uh, test and is going to go to just college on a full ride. We have students who go to Ivy League schools every year, students who do amazing things and then come back to their community. So I think the other thing I would say is like, Appalachians are humble people. Um, and I, historically, when I interview Appalachian students to join Teach for America, they have a very hard time bragging about their individual accomplishments because it's such a collective of mentality here of like we, my team, my church, my community, my school. And I think that when you have a, a group of people who are both really resilient, uh, working really hard to take care of each other and humble, it's just a recipe for not elevate, elevating bright spots. And I, I do think that one of our roles at TFA, um, Luke serves on our, on our board and our board is really focused on like how can students tell their own stories of progress and accomplishment uh, as the world so that we can change the global and local view of what they're doing. Um, back to your point about, you know, don't read Hillbilly Elegy. Um, I'm not editing that part out. This is an anti-Hillbilly Elegy podcast, actually. Um, it's just in our bylaws. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I want to recognize that I, I think that it's, you know, I always tell people, I think it's a really powerful memoir. And I think that, uh, you know, he is, he is funding some really great work that's happening in the region. I just worry about any one book being the book that people read. Uh, to right. make sense of a place. Um, I would recommend lots of other books to supplement your understanding. And I just think there's there's always danger in reading one person's memoir and believing that that is the experience of an entire region of people. So that's, I'm just always cautious of like, don't just read that book, right? Like, let's read like 10 books about Appalachia. Let's read Uneven Ground. Let's read Elizabeth Cat's book. Let's read uh, any, any article Ivy Brashear has ever written. Um, so I think that that's just what I meant. But I, yeah, what were you going to ask, Stacey? Oh, like next question wise or... Just what I just I realized saying. I interrupted your I interrupted your uh, clarification about hillbilly elegy. So whatever whatever you're about to say, my dear. <laughs> oh uh, no, I was just uh, just messing around. Um, yes, but I totally agree with you. You know, he is funding some great things, but the the one one all be all is that is that the saying? I don't know. Luke knows more about that saying than me, probably. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with the the one book being the only memoir and the songbird of Appalachia, you know, um, not always a great thing. And that goes for anything. Um, I look forward to reading your all's memoirs. Oh yeah, for sure. That's all I'm going to say about, that's all I'm going to say about that. Me and Michael are going to open a nonprofit one day in Appalachia. We don't know, um, what it's about necessarily yet, but we're getting here for it. I'm here for it. It will involve sending tons of kids to college. Yeah, we kind of want to do a, a revamp. Oh, so inter interestingly, Michael, one of my friends in Hazard, his idea is that, that it's not the sending kids to college part. It's the getting kids to come back part. He thinks all of this money for scholarships should go into forgiving student loans or paying for graduate school for these students that choose to come back afterwards, which is not necessarily what I'm advocating for. It's just a very interesting idea, I think. I'm, I'm snapping as hard as they can go over here. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting. Me and Michael actually met with a donor the other day who was specifically interested in, um, you know, what to look for in Appalachian students because he wants to um, fund experiential like internships. Um, because we kind of just told him point blank that, you know, if, you know, like for me, anyways, this isn't, you know, a blanket statement, but for me, I know that, you know, I don't necessarily come from a wealthy family and so it's like if you don't have money to do these internships in Washington DC or far away or even study abroad then you know those dreams are kind of like out of reach without uh, student loans so 
Um, we've definitely had conversations about how we get students to come back and how we get Appalachian students to kind of fall in love with their heritage. Um, we're, but, we're working on that a lot um, and at the regional level because I think, you know, every time I'm on like Berea's campus, for example, I just think there are like hundreds of students here who would be remarkable core members because they get it, because they have the equity and service lens, because they they often themselves are first generation college students. So I think I would love to keep continuing this conversation, Stacey and Michael, as you learn more about like who's leading here and who's doing good work. Because I think we're just sort of we're, we're just sort of getting started. Like, how do we get great folks like you two who are both going to be Teach for America core members? So. That's great. Um, just deciding for you, speaking into your futures. Uh, you know, but I, I just think we just need to be doing more stuff like that for sure. Notice that neither one of us um, objected to that statement. So great. Um, so I'll get the paperwork and we'll get started. See you in a few years. Yeah, just send it on over. No problem. No problem. Um, you know, you talked about communities really taking care of each other. And so um, leading into our next question, we kind of want to talk about, you know, I think it's hard to do anything these days without talking about the current pandemic that is happening, um, which is why this whole podcast now has to be from a remote setting. Um, so we, we're kind of interested in knowing, like, will the COVID-19 pandemic have ripple effects, in your opinion, you know, on education in our region? And if so, um, how do you think that that will affect us? I know it's kind of, kind of a general and broad question, um, and nobody probably really knows the answer, but you know, from um, educators' perspectives, we just kind of want to know. Um, I'll, I'll jump in there to kind of speak from the on-the-ground level, and then Steph can kind of talk about the, the larger picture. Um, so, you know, our, our school has reacted the same way that every school has reacted. And, you know, we've got to do online classes, um, things of that nature. So, you know, what what I think, and this is a blanket statement. I'm just speaking about my school, but I think it, it, it's kind of the story of a lot of schools is that, you know, what, what is the difference between a school here and a school in a urban, a privileged school, a private school in an urban community? They probably have all of their teachers already lined up on Microsoft suites or Google classrooms or things of that nature. They've been practicing that. Their students are all one-to-one. They all have tablets. And they, they, see, these students don't just have tablets, but they know how to use them. Those students go home and they've got broadband or very good Wi-Fi. Um, and so, you know, our school, we didn't have any of that. It was kind of, they literally gave us eight hours to figure out how we were going to do online teaching. Now, you know me, I, you know, I, I've, I've been doing that stuff for a little bit, so it wasn't as difficult for me. But some teachers, it was a genuine struggle and, and we are still trying to figure it out. Because we live in an area that does not have broadband, that does not have good Wi-Fi, we are not, you know, we are not allowed to just only teach online classes. I've got a brother who teaches in Louisville and all of his students show up for Zoom every day. I've tried to do that, but the reality is, is that some kids don't have internet at home. Some kids are not living in homes that are, you know, prioritize that. And, and so we've got to figure out how to navigate those things. So it's kind of like... COVID-19 for schools in Appalachia is kind of like every other challenge in Appalachia. We have it just like other places have it, but here it seems to be a bigger obstacle and we are fighting it with less resources. And, you know, that puts our kids at a disadvantage. I couldn't agree more, Luke. I think, um, first of all, shout out to every teacher in Appalachia that is trying to get through this and is doing an incredible job. I I see the most innovative things every day of teachers just trying to figure out how to reach their kids. I think, I think there's a few sort of hats I put on here when I think about this question. Stacey and Michael, so again, feel free to cut me off. You won't offend me. 
the first hat is like, as a special educator, I just have to be really transparent about the fact that I can't spend much emotional energy thinking about this without losing my mind. We have so many students with special needs right now who are not receiving any services, not because their teachers don't valiantly want to, but because it requires physical touch or it requires, you know, a lot of technology, technology assistance that to Luke's point is not available. Um, so that I think is heartbreaking and will lead to a variety of consequences in our educational system. I think that's actually what I'm most worried about is if we if we make this shift to virtual learning without being incredibly intentional about what that means for students with special needs, and I just worry that they're going to continue to get left behind, as they often already are in the conversation. I think the second thing that feels really concerning to me uh, as an education leader in Appalachia is the social isolation potential that our students are experiencing, because obviously the academic gaps are profound, and we should be very concerned about that. But I, like I we, there's actually a lot of proven models in pedagogical literature of how to catch students up very quickly. We know it's very possible for students to gain 1.5 or even two years of learning in one year. So I'm, I'm actually less concerned about that when we do get back to school. I just have a lot of questions about students who, to Luke's point, live in a, maybe live in a home with no internet or limited cell phone service or a home that now because of a layoff or because of uh, other challenges can no longer afford to pay for either of those bills, which I think is happening more and more from what I hear on the ground. I just imagine being an 11 year old living in a house with my grandparents, which we know is so common. Um, and we have so many heroic grandparents who are raising children or single parent homes where you might not have a sibling or you might not have a sibling that's the same age as you and you're really lacking that social emotional development. So I, I, I personally believe that when we go back to school in the, in the traditional sense, that teachers will have to have spent this time learning a lot about trauma-informed teaching practices and social emotional learning. Cause I just think that's gonna be, I think we should spend the first month of school getting kids back into the into the rhythm of doing school and being in a room of 30 people and dealing with the anxiety that that might cause to be in a large group gathered in one place after all of these warnings and shelter in place. So I, I think that teachers across the country are, I think we're finally realizing across the nation what heroes teachers are. Um, and I, I am eager to see what we do to support teachers in getting the development that they need to be ready to go back to school. Yeah, yeah, I just want to start our conversation by saying that think uh, about um, you know teachers are learning a whole entire new way to deliver content to their students. The circumstances aren't great, but you know I have family who are teachers, and you know I hear stories all the time about how you know their students are getting in the hang of of Google Classroom or Zoom or whatever you know format they're using, and uh, I think that teachers are learning a lot about the benefits of technology and how to best utilize it. I mean, right now it's the primary mode of delivery, but I think that we're going to see after this, you know, a lot of secondary um, uses for this technology that people have, have had to kind of be thrown into and learn. And so, you know, I, I think it's, it's oftentimes easy to look at the negatives, but I think this crash crash course on um, more personalized delivery and, and help for students is, it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out and how, you know, the, the pedagogy and, and the practices change to adapt to, you know, using technology like we've used for the past few weeks um, in an ongoing way. And so I think that's also something that's important to note that, you know, some teachers in who are privileged to, you know, teach in areas that have better Internet or, or that, you know, students have more access or they've been able to provide resources to students um, so that they can access these resources are, I think, are, are learning, are learning some new um, and creative ways to meet the needs of their students. And so I don't know if you guys had seen any of that or if, if you have similar experiences. 
Yeah, crisis often breeds the best innovations. I absolutely agree with you that I think some teachers who otherwise would never have tried this stuff are, are, are thriving. Yeah, I think to add to that, one huge opportunity that I see here um, that my that some of the teachers in our region are working on and one of my incredible staff members is working on is like, how do we reimagine what NTI means, non-traditional instruction days, for weather-related closures, right? I think um, we're, kid we're kidding ourselves. I know that Hazard Independent is, a, is an exception given its location, but... Um, we're kidding ourselves if we don't think the kids in Appalachia are already home for extended closures due to weather. Um, I don't know where you're from, Mike, but I, uh, you know, in Floyd County, 40 days of snow days is not abnormal. Uh, I live uh, on the Kentucky-Virginia border in a, in a very mountainous area where uh, more than 40 closures are not abnormal for flooding, for snow, for ice, for sleet, for a variety of things. And I just, I want to speak hugs of the fact of like, how do we develop a best practice now that again, both considers like trauma and social emotional learning to use for those weather related closures that will inevitably continue to happen even after this pandemic is done. Where, where did you go to school, Michael? I'm from Johnson County. I went to Johnson Central High School. That's a, that's a good school. Go Eagles. Do you know, I didn't, Mr. I didn't Wheeler? Say that. Did, you, did you have Mr. Wheeler when you were in school, Michael? For social Absolutely. study? He's on my staff. He works for Teach for America. If you knew that, yeah, he's a teacher coach, so I'm sure he was an awesome teacher. And now he's spreading that good stuff all across the region. Incredible! Tell him I said hi the next time you see him. Well, what's your last name? Hamilton. I'm sure that Michael Hamilton says hello to Mr. Wheeler. It will make his day. <laughs> Thank you. So the next question we have, idea that we want to talk through is. How would you guys encourage, I mean, we, we've heard a lot about TFA, but what's a way that, you know, others can invest in education in Appalachia? Um, I know we oftentimes think about budgetary increases at a state level, but, you know, as we're seeing now, due to economic uncertainty because of all this, that might not be as feasible in the future. And so what are some, you know, great organizations or things that folks can do to, to contribute to giving back to teachers and, and students in Appalachia? Oh, that's a great question. I, go ahead, Luke, you can go first. No, I was, I was, the, all I was going to say was you got this. Um, we are really lucky at TFA Appalachia to have an, uh, a really remarkable lobbying team uh, who supported us. And we are currently set to have an increase in state funding this year, which is truly a miracle. And I know that there were a lot of great organizations that did not get that privilege. So I'm cognizant and empathetic of that. Um, I, I, I really, you know, I, I don't like telling people where to donate their money unless it's for work. And that, that that's actually my job. But I do, I do think, uh, to y'all's question, there's there's something really powerful about identifying who are the real systems thinkers in your community, who are people that are wrapping their arms around not just one institution or one teacher or one school, but who are thinking about, like, what are all the things that have to happen in a community for education to be powerful? I would first encourage people to lobby uh, at the state and federal level for, for some of the stimulus. There's a lot of stimulus education funding that's coming down to states. And I think we need to get really clear as Appalachian communities about what is the best way to utilize those funds uh, on behalf of our most vulnerable students. And I think I'm, I'm excited to continue being part of that conversation at the state and potentially federal level. I think that one group that I always think about is the Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky is just a really really great example of what happens when a community says we're not fighting each other we're all on a team 
uh, the foundation helps uh, helps nonprofits like mine and others really figure out where are the funding sources. They help people um, have endowments or or you know have their own philanthropic fund. That, so I just think that the more we could see models like that and Appalachia of organizations working together. I, I'm sure you all see this happen all the time in your studies, but I, I'm really frustrated by all of the siloing that happens. And, you know, there might be five nonprofits in one county that all say that they're working towards educational equity. And I would like to see us over the next 10 years move to a model where we say, if you and I are both in it for kids, then how can we share resources? How can we share capacity uh, pieces like that? But Luke, yeah, in your experience, any groups that you would flag for folks? I, I just want to say a uh, shout out. See, since you shouted out the foundation, Kristen had her baby this morning. So shout out Kristen Collins and your as of yet unnamed daughter. Uh, if you listen to this, we're very happy for you. Um, so, oof, I, I don't really have like a specific organization. It, it's more, I, I tend to think of things in terms of, of, of like the culture of thought and I think that the biggest thing that anybody can do, whether you're listening to this as a student of Appalachia or just somebody who's interested in education, whether you're in college or high school or an adult, I think we need to start thinking about education as what can, it's not what do I want to, what do our kids want to be when they grow up? It's how can they help the community that brought them up? Um, I think that those two questions can exist side by side. Um, I think there's a lot of ambitious kids that come out of Appalachia that want to do big things. And those big things can happen here. I, I don't think that we should, you know, you don't want to force or guilt kids into coming back. But I, I just think that the current model of education as exists is, hey, let's take our best and brightest and help them, you know, get them out of here. And whether that's the desire or not, that's what happens. And I think that we can start rethinking things in terms of, you know, you want to have an impact. There's no reason you can't have an impact. And in fact, your impact will be tenfold if you come back home and you do the same things that were done for you. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, we have an alumni, uh, Colby Kirk, who lives in Harlan County and leads an organization called One Harlan County. Um really accomplished young man. I got to be his teacher coach when he taught. But I think to Luke's point, Colby's an example of, you know, in what other part of the world can you be an executive director at age 25 or age 20? I don't know how old Colby is, but it's younger than me. So I will say that much. But um, I, I think to Luke's point, it's the whole the whole big fish in a small pond phenomenon. I think we really take for granted in Appalachia. And to again, to Luke's point, I think education in our region has to be aware of that and has to talk about it openly with students that, you know, you can move to New York City and go work for Deloitte, but you're going to be one of thousands of other people that did the exact same thing. And, you know, what, what's, what's, where's the glory in that? And how are you going to help your mamma and people that raised you if, if that's the case, as opposed to being a Stacy or a Mike who are really committed to doing huge systemic level work in a place that they love. Um, I just think that we've got to tell that story more often. And I think the last thing to Luke's point about like contributing to the conversation I ask one of the best things people can do if they want to help students in Appalachia um, who don't, again, who don't need their help, but just need their support and their megaphone uh, is just share positive stories of what's happening in the region on social media. Uh, make sure that when people Google Appalachia, the first thing they see is stories like U2s. Um, so just elevating those positive stories, even if you aren't from here, it means the world to our communities. Yes, for sure. And so would you say that that kind of plays into um, our last question of the day, you know, like what is one takeaway for our listeners today? Like if you had to, if you had to leave us with 
one message about education in Appalachia or just um, any imparting wisdom that you may have, um, what would that be for you two? If you are listening to this, I want you to know that Appalachia is the most undersold uh, and most hidden gem of our nation and that our students here are capable of things that are beyond my wildest dreams for them. Um, and I would invite anyone who's not been to the region to, when, every, when it is safe to travel, when Andy says we can, I, I would welcome anyone. Uh, I will give you a personalized tour or write an itinerary for you, but the more people that can see what our communities are capable of um, and see the remarkable beauty, we would love to have you visit. These are the kindest and most generous people I will ever live with. Um, our students are just as bright and just as driven as anybody else. Um, all they need is the opportunity. And, and I am extremely proud of both of you for, at the risk of sounding condescending, because uh, we're pretty much colleagues, but I, I'm extremely proud of both of you for seizing those opportunities and for seizing that narrative and, and, and starting to tell it the way that you want it to be Absolutely. told. Yes. The, more that, the more kids that we can, the more Stacys and Michaels that we can get, um, the better off this region is going to be. Well, y'all are going to be emotional uh, this Wednesday. Um, You're cutting out, Stacey. Let me see. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah. All right, cool. Um, well, y'all are going to make me emotional on this fine Wednesday afternoon. So thanks for that. But um, yeah, I, I often say, and I'm sure that I've told both Luke and Stephanie this that a lot of times kids just need someone to believe in them and um extremely thankful for both of you believing in not only me you know my story is not unique it's it's so like so many other students who y'all have believed in and put that effort into um so now we kind of want to take a moment and you know hand it over to you what special projects or um anything like that you have going on that you want to tell us about um we just want to give you an opportunity to do that. Go for it, Luke. Uh, okay, so um, I, I haven't really talked much about my um, my work on, on city council, and I mean, it was a pretty it was a pretty big deal being not from here and 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 getting elected. I'm not going to say it hasn't happened before, but it hasn't happened for a while. And Stacy, you know, you were instrumental in in making that happen, and and so. You know, I, I get to play a small role in the revitalization of Hazard. Um, we are kind of getting a reputation regionally as a city where things are happening and where people are willing to make things happen. And uh, my kind of specialty at that table is that I'm good at getting young people involved in, in, in leadership positions. And so I, I last year I started a uh, fellowship for the city. I believe it is the most um, holistic um civic internship uh, in the state of Kentucky for high school and college students, and it's paid. Um, last year was our first year, and it was an excellent first year. And so this year, we're hoping to expand on that. Um, I would love for it to grow and serve as a model for other communities. And I, I'd love to just get the, the word about out there as about this as another strategy for, um, you know, getting young people thinking about what they can do for their communities. In addition, let's see. Um, yeah, I, I, like I said in my, in my big spiel five minutes ago, I, I kind of want to take my role as an educator and start thinking about this, continue to think about this, you know, how, how do we, is the goal of education to get your best and brightest and let them leave? Like, is that, is that the end all be all? Is that the reason that we're here as teachers? And so I, I don't really have a project per se, but 
that's what is on my mind uh, as I go, as this year closes out and we get ready for next year's teaching. Yeah, I would say that you know, at Teach for America Appalachia, we are really laser focused on making sure our teachers are set up to support their students. Um, we are offering biweekly professional development for our teachers over Zoom where they're learning new things and having great conversations. The thing we're really gearing up to do um, is make sure that we're sharing those stories, uh, again, those stories of positivity and impact. So I would encourage folks to follow us on social media since we're all on our computers and phones all day anyway. Uh, we are on Facebook at Teach for America Appalachia, and we are on Instagram as at Applegram, A-P-P-A-L-G-R-A-M. We have a pretty nifty website, um, and we're just always looking for more partners to help us make sense of what's going on here to help us identify uh, where, the, where the most need is. So we're really excited. We're already starting to actually hire a lot of our uh, 2020 core of teachers. We have um, about 11 amazing people joining us in the region next year, which is really exciting. And we have two of them already hired with many going to be hired in the next few weeks. So we are right in the thick of it. But yes, follow us on social media. We are going to be starting a very exciting campaign that I can't yet tell you about um, in the next few weeks. So stay tuned for that. Well, again, thank you both so much um, for taking time out of your day. You've both been role models to me for sure. Um, and I look forward likewise, to likewise. Likewise. Yeah, thank you guys I for all the work. I want to be Stacy when I grow up. Yeah, now I want to be Michael when I grow up too. So this is, a, I have a new role model. Thank you both. <laughs> no, thank you guys for all the work you do. It, it means a lot uh, to see people dedicating their, their careers and their time and their, you know, love and effort to help in a place that we, Stacy and I both love so much. So thank you guys for that. And we really appreciate you. Thank you. Yes, and as this was um, a little bit more difficult to do remotely, we are still appreciative and, you know, hope the quality is great. Shout out to Zencaster. Um, but, yeah, so that concludes our episode. Um, and in the meantime, make sure you tune in to episode five. We're not 100% sure what it's going to be about, but tune in. It'll, it'll surely be interesting with me and Michael. <laughs> so, um, in the meantime, I'm Stacy. And I'm Michael. And we'll holler at you later. <laughs>